It's almost 3 p.m. Stay with us now for Cover to Cover. Open book. Good afternoon and welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we bring you a program from Sprouts, the weekly program produced by Pacifica Affiliates. This edition comes to us from native-owned and solar-powered radio in Hoopa, California, KIDE. This is the first part of a two-part series that documents the impact and the aftermath of the 2002 Klamath River fish kill, titled Dying for Water, produced by Roby Cook and Northern California Cultural Communications. Stay tuned. Welcome to Sprouts, radio from the grassroots, a weekly news magazine produced by your community radio station and many others across the country. I'm Debbie Leinhart from KRFC in Fort Collins, Colorado. I understand there's some problem with some salmon up here. In the fall of 2002, disease raged through the warm and shallow water of the once mighty Klamath River in Northern California. Within days, 68,000 adult Chinook salmon perished as they tried to return home to spawn. This week on Sprouts, people from the Hoopa, Yurok, and Karuk tribes describe their experience of the fish kill using traditional stories to illustrate and explain why this event had such a deep impact on them. This program was produced at KIDE, native-owned and solar-powered radio in Hoopa, California by Roby Cook and by Northern California Cultural Communications, a native-controlled media resource organization. This is the Wednesday, October 16th edition of Native America Calling. I'm your host, Harlan Macasto. Well, an ugly scene has taken place in the waters of the Klamath River. Uh, recently, the fall salmon runs on the Klamath River in Northern California have been devastated by a massive fish kill. An estimated 30,000 salmon have been found bloated and dead in the river. Now, this spring, as you might recall, we did a story. Hello, I'm Merv George, Jr. I'm a native Hoopa tribal member here in Northern California. My professional career involves natural resource preservation and protecting indigenous rights. I've also been a cultural practitioner all of my life, so you can say that the rivers and salmon are really important to me. In the fall of 2002, you might have heard about it in the news when over 68,000 Chinook salmon died in the Klamath River, located in Northern California. But you probably haven't heard the whole story of how Mother Nature is being manipulated by government and politics in the Klamath Basin. And I'm pretty sure you haven't heard much from the Indian people who actually had to live through that. And believe me, it was a nasty, heartbreaking situation. River, And, uh, you know, some people are calling this a uh, ecological disaster. I don't know if you've seen pictures of what's going on there, but uh, it's, it's truly something that is having a devastating impact on, as you heard, uh, on the people who live along the, uh, the river. Now, uh... the Klamath River Basin is mountainous terrain that is home to the Trinity and Klamath Rivers. These two beautiful rivers flow through the ravines and valleys all the way to the Pacific Ocean. The basin is considered home to many tribes, including the Yurok, the Hoopa, the Karuk, the Klamath tribes in the upper Klamath Basin, and also the Sunungwe in Upper Trinity. 
The Hoopa, Yurok, and Kuduk are all self-governance tribes and out of necessity have become very politically savvy. Among the many diverse political issues they're involved with, fishery and water management has become a commonality. These tribes also realize that it takes the legal, political, biological, and cultural strength to protect their fish and their subsistence way of life. But this is California, and water means a big deal to a lot of people, especially for agribusiness and hydropower electricity. This forces the federal government to divide and prioritize a limited resource among many competing water interests. In 2001, the Federal Bureau of Reclamation decided the downstream river interests took priority over the farmers. This resulted in an unprecedented curtailment of agribusiness water supplies. 2002 saw another dry year, and this time the Klamath River was curtailed, resulting in extremely low river flows. This resulted in one of the largest fish kills in American history. The first sign of real trouble started in the late spring, when the weather started warming up and the river level really started dropping. As the water goes down, shallow ponds get left along sides of the main river, and little baby fish get trapped. The birds get them, the raccoons get them, but mostly they just die as the water dries up. And die they did for the next couple of months. Over 200,000 baby salmon, our scientists figured, and that's just the ones that they were able to count. Nobody else seemed to notice or care very much. What's newsworthy about a bunch of little one-inch long fish, for crying out loud? Not when there's votes and money at stake. So in August of 2002, everyone involved in tribal fisheries was praying for rain because we knew there wasn't enough water for the fish and we knew we weren't going to get the water from the Klamath Irrigation Project. I got it first on an email from one of the Yurok biologists. We've got a problem here. We've got a few hundred dead fish. Big guys. Susan Masson was then chairwoman of the Yurok tribe. Solis Jackson is curator of the Hoopa Tribal Museum. I was home and um, I had tribal members calling me and, and with panic in their voices. They were, um, they were wondering, what can we do? There, there's fish dying, you gotta do something. And pleading with me to take some sort of action. And I'm, I'm not sure what they thought I could do, but um, they didn't know what else to do. And so they were calling me and, and well, I thought, oh, there's a few fish that have died and I wonder what that is. So I really didn't, I didn't, although I heard the urgency in their voice, I wasn't thinking, I was thinking of a few fish and I'm thinking, well, that could wait till Monday. That was my thought because it, it was that time and I was thinking that can wait until, you know, next week. Um, but the urgency was intensifying with each call that I got. But that night, old friends of my dad came to visit the house from downriver. And he just wanted, as soon as he came to the door, he wanted to talk about the fish and what had happened. Then everybody was kind of um, still in shock about it, you know. And uh, he came in, he started crying, talking about the fish. I then the next day I arranged to go up in a boat um, and I, I don't care how many people could have called me to tell me verbally what was going on 
nothing would have prepared me for what I seen that day. And you can't imagine what it what it looks like um, to see 20 miles of um, three to four fish deep on each side of the banks of the river um, for for 20 miles, and to then see fish floating down down the river all the way for 20 miles and then hundreds of fish in every riffle and in every eddy as you went up the river it was the most horrific sight that i think i've ever seen um and it was a sick you got a sick feeling and um you felt helpless you felt anger and the smell was um overwhelming so it's not it you'll never forget that site and it's a site that i don't ever want for my grandchildren to see in their lifetime again now news of the massive fish kill affected many people from all over the northwest but none are more impacted than those who live along the Klamath River, uh, those who have not only economic but also cultural and spiritual value in the salmon. Well, what I saw is a very ugly situation where there are a lot of dead fish. Um, one of our natural resources is being killed off like so many other things in don't see a whole lot being done about it. This this is upsetting our whole balance, our equilibrium on the, on the river here. So, and it's not natural. This is an unnatural act here. We knew something was going to happen. We you know didn't you know exactly know what? Because when we're in there doing our prayers, we're, we're praying and thanking, wanting to everything to be good, and you know hoping for more water. But we also realize that you know the Creator can give us more water. But if the man that's got the valve, if he isn't opening it up, it isn't going to do us any good. Sickening. I know I pray for these fish and everything and then see them massacred like this. If you seen those fish, oh, everybody needed to see it. It was something that would you never forget as long as you live. And then some. you never forget. Dead fish. And it just reminded me of how good a caretaker and how I laxed. And personally, everybody, you can't help but take it personal. It's everybody's responsibility. And that when I looked and seen all that death, I just thought that I was negligent in my responsibilities to stand up and speak. So I'm standing up and speaking, and I'm urging all the rest of you people, I'm telling you people, that you need to stand up and do the same. Well, I think it's an atrocity of magnitude in front of my house on the Klamath River. Uh, the bottom of the river is silver. Uh, with the salmon that are laying on the bottom of the river. And, and you hear people talk about different events, marked events in history, you know. This this is this was something different here. This was, Jesus Christ, I could grab me thousands of fish, you know. I couldn't believe that that, that happened like that, you know. But And like I say, what, this memorial today was for the fish. And I hope the people that went up there to and seen the dead fish get to get a, re a relief themselves of talking to the other people about it so that they don't pack that with them all the time because that just seeing the pictures it was enough for me you know 
and it it is just uh, sickening. It was sad to think that that something like that could deliberately happen. You know, uh, it's like you know you tell your kid, "Don't do that. You're going to get hurt." You know. Pretty soon the kid comes back bawling. You told him you were going to get hurt. So, well, I told you so. See, well, this is what happened here. And, you know, but uh, the fish all died. The fish all died. That finally got everybody's attention. That was Ron Bates, Richard Myers, James Proctor, Lawrence O'Rourke, Tony Silvio, Walt Lara Sr., and Bertha Peters, Yurok tribal members who live on the Klamath River. Have you ever seen one of those big guys? A full-grown adult Chinook salmon? These things are like gold. These things are so important and, and, and a part of us that it literally is like looking at a loved one. These fish are truly a testament of strength perseverance, um, the ability to adapt to any environment. I mean, we as tribal people gather so much strength from these fish, watching them bump their noses on the dams, watching them try to go up these creeks that are two inches deep. These fish have a lot of lessons that they can teach us as people. And to see these things being massacred and desecrated the way that they have been is just like pulling your own heart out and throwing it on the river bar. The Yurok, Hoopa, and Kuduk tribes have lived along these rivers for at least 10,000 years, and there is no story that anyone can remember, ever, about something like this happening. This many fish dying all at once. And the oral tradition does not forget things. We have a story about a whale that came upriver from the inland ocean. We also remember where the first salmon came from. Hey, no. Uh, no. So I'm going to take you back in time a little bit. Hate no, hot no, hate hot no. So in those days, uh, these two sisters that lived at Amakiatam were the only ones that had salmon. It was just that way. It wasn't like they were... Uh, stingy or something, but that's just the way the world was made, and they were the only ones that had salmon. Nobody else in the world had salmon. And I'm with Yadam. They were coyotes, stole them from the three sisters up there in the, up in the hill and dumped them in that hole. You know, back when it was just the spirits in the world. Hot, hate, hot, hate, hate now, hate now, hate, 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 hate. You're listening to Sprouts. This week we hear the first half of a documentary on the impact and aftermath of the 2002 Klamath River fish kill. And there's Aurorigas over there. That's supposed to be the keeper of our fish and stuff. Think how sad she must be right now. That rock right there, see it? 
Aurorgus, see, when the Creator did all this stuff, He put the fish and He took the spirits of those fish so that they'd have, she'd have control of it, and He put it in that rock there, see. Kuduk and Yurok Stories. That was Brian Tripp and Philip Quartz, Kuduk and Walt Lara Sr., Yurok. Once the salmon were loose in the river, they did like other creatures and multiplied. By the time the first white men got here, the Klamath Basin was the third largest salmon-producing river system on the West Coast. Only the Sacramento and the Columbia were greater. When tribes were in control of protecting this resource, millions of salmon came home every year. Author Freeman House reads from his book, Totem Salmon. Widely accepted models of human nature, as driven by greed and self-interest, would lead us to expect one people warring against another over the salmon runs of the Klamath Basin. The earliest anthropologist, however, discovered an entirely different picture. Collective cultural practices were built around the life of the river, rather than on conflict between user groups. And this was accomplished without sacrificing the diversity of unique tribal identities. The anthropologists found a shared tradition of intertribal self-regulation that seems to have risen right out of the river. We are a riverine people, according to the anthropologists. Our everything is built around the river. Our directions, our livelihoods, our food, our whole sense of who we are, our pleasure, our entertainment, derived mainly from the river. Yurok territory stretches from the estuary of the Klamath River upstream some 60 miles to its confluence with a large tributary, the Trinity. Further upstream and along the Trinity River live the Hoopa. Further upstream yet, and along another large tributary, the Salmon River, the Karuk live. Of course, the Klamath and the Trinity are one river in that they're connected and their fish are connected. And uh, When water flows out of the Trinity at Wichapak into the Klamath, it's, uh, it's a name game from there on down. What do you call that river? Well, we call it the Klamath, but it's also the bottom of the Trinity. Our river and their river are connected just like veins from the heart go to the leg or go to, you know, your arm. And um, we're connected that way. And we all pray, we dance with the same regalia, we go to the same high country to pray, all three tribes. And it's not only the salmon, but it's the river itself, you know. And they know that as long as the river's alive, we're still going to be here, you know. So it's just like our blood. That was Robert Franklin, hydrologist for the Hoopa tribe, Susie Carpenter Sanchez, Hoopa, Richard Myers, Yurok. This is Melody George Hoopa talking about the inland whale story I mentioned to you a minute ago. Now, tens of thousands of years ago, um, archaeologists have dug into the, the layers, the strata of the earth. And um, in the central California valleys, uh, they recognize the fact that that used to be a part of the ocean, uh, the inland ocean. During that period of time, my guess, because this story is old, there was a whale that came up through the river passageways and beached itself or died or was stranded at the head of Horse Linto Creek. Its head was pointed um, towards the northwest and its tail 
emptied out into the river where Horse Linto Creek now empties out into the Trinity River. And thinking about this story, metaphorically, what does that mean, that whale? Um, why is it in our river and what does that all mean? It means that we have a connection. Um, it symbolizes the, the water cycle. We have a connection to the ocean. And back to the fish kill, you know, this is readily obvious because the salmon come from the ocean. They make their way up the rivers and spawn in our creeks. Here's Lawrence O'Rourke, Yurok, and Walt Lara, Yurok as well. The salmon is, um, that's, that's our life, it's, that's our livelihood. Here, we have, we live in a, some, I don't know, 90 eagle. 90% plus unemployment. Fish is what we eat in wintertime. We, we live in an area, um, there's no electricity, and uh, there's not much work to speak of. So what work, there's some tribal employment, but that's small comparatively. So our main, um, our main food source is fish. Well, salmon is, is an important part of our life. It's in our, it's in our prayers. The salmon's in our prayers to, 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 to have the fish. It's the same as the, the... It says in the prayers, it talks about... You know, our, our, our riches, and that's not riches of money, it's riches of the land and where we live, the fish and all the, the value that we have that the river provides for us. That's what it talks about, and it talks about the balance, how, how we feel about the fish. So salmon means pretty much to us. All the fish do mean a lot to us. Salmon to us equals people, equals lives. They're people. They have a purpose, just like us. Again, Freeman House. Aboriginal peoples on the Pacific Rim were quick to understand the powers of their technologies and the dangers of the traps and weirs and nets posed to salmon. They understood the double-edged power of tools, which give humans an ecological advantage, as well as the power to destroy their provision. We take their lives, and it's by our skill that, that we're able to do that. Our skill and knowledge, understanding of fish, and where the fish run, when they run, time of night, where we set, how we set place, and how we fix our net. Have our skill and our knowledge of understanding the fish in the river, the conditions, and how to do that. And it's our skill that, with that skill, we take their life. I kill that fish, and by killing that fish, I am responsible for um, using that fish well. And the way I use that fish well is by living a good life. To me, it's like responsibility. When I take that fish's life, that I'm assuming responsibility for their children's and being able to provide for their children the way I provide is by working to secure water, a home. That's the fish's home, river. Quality water so that they can live and continue. 
river's my home, my home. Widely accepted models of human nature, as driven by greed and self-interest, would lead us to expect one people warring against another over the salmon runs of the Klamath Basin until one group dominates the resource or the resource is destroyed. Mr. House got it right, except the war isn't over salmon exactly. It's over water. They can make all arguments they want, but the bottom of the line is common sense. Tell you fish can't live without water. It's as simple as that. Although the tribal people believe that fish can live without water, some federal bureaucrats seem to have a hard time believing this fact. The Bureau of Reclamation Commissioner John Keyes got up in front of the tribes over at a meeting that we had in Reading, and he said, "Listen, we have no scientific proof to determine that fish really do need water." <laughs> we were like, "Are you shitting me?" <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. I mean, it's like, okay, we are on Mars here. To his credit, he came in and said, listen, I've got orders. Headquarters says the farmers are getting what they want. You guys are fighting over the leftovers. That was his opening statement. And we said, okay, can we buy you lunch? <laughs> Klamath River drains out of the upper Klamath Lake, 200 and some miles from the mouth. Before it begins to run down through the Siskiyous, just west of I-5, the river has to work its way through the vast plumbing system of the Klamath Irrigation Project. This operation of the Bureau of Reclamation was started in 1905, when the federal government bought out the water rights of private irrigation companies and the land title from California and Oregon, and began building dams and ditches. The dry rangelands of the inland basin were open to homesteaders from 1917 to 1948. New settlers could get land absolutely free if they agreed to pay a small fee for the water that the government irrigation project would deliver. The project now irrigates over 200,000 acres of alfalfa, potatoes, onions, sugar beets, and grain through a network of over 1,000 miles of canals, laterals, and drains. The plug, as it were, to this whole system is Iron Gate Dam, just east of the town of Hornbrook. Iron Gate was built in 1962 for hydropower, and since it does not have any fish ladders located on it, this is the end of the road for salmon. Over 200 miles of salmon habitat is now inaccessible. Upstream from Iron Gate, the Link River Dam regulates how much water will go down the river and how much will be diverted into the A Canal for irrigation. Kevin Gover worked in the Department of the Interior as the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs during the Clinton administration. The Klamath River, the Klamath Basin, really, was uh, was one of those issues that, um, oh, how would you say it? You have various federal agencies basically competing for a very limited resource. Um, we, of course, were trying to preserve the tribal treaty right to fish and gather in the area and we kept making the point over and over that that of course requires water 
and that therefore the tribes had a reserved right to enough water to maintain the fisheries resource uh, in the basin. Frankly, that didn't always matter. Uh, you know, first of all, the other agencies are used to running roughshod over BIA and over the tribes. And so their first approach is always to say, you know, you don't have any, any reserved water right. Well, the secretary said, well, yes, they do. So we got past that. That's it for this week's Sprouts. Tune in to next week's program to hear the second half of this documentary about the political jockeying over water and votes that led to the destruction of the Klamath River ecosystem and left salmon on the verge of extinction. Hear also about how the events of 2002 galvanized the native people, including a new generation of youth, to fight on, using everything from shareholder advocacy to local organizing. Today's program was produced at KIDE, native-owned and solar-powered radio in Hoopa, California by Roby Cook, and Northern California Cultural Communications, a native-controlled media resource organization serving Native American and rural Northern California communities. To listen to the entire program or for a CD copy, visit www.flickerfeather.org or call 1-800-461-3991. Thanks to Jim Bennett, Michael Yoshida, and the Pacifica Radio Foundation for distribution assistance. Our Sprouts Air Traffic Controller is Ursula Rudenberg, and I'm Debbie Leinhardt from KRFC in Fort Collins, Colorado. You just heard Dying for Water, which came to us from KIDE, native-owned and solar-powered radio in Hoopa, California. Tune in next week here on Cover to Cover Open Book on Friday at 3 p.m. when we bring you part two.